if you recall where, where we've been the last few weeks, uh, we, were, we were exploring, uh, looking at the way in which the Reformation was jeopardized in the crucial years, uh, the early 1520s, by the rise of various forms of radicalism. Uh, the Reformation, in other words, was being, was, was threatened uh, with turning into a social movement, a radical kind of social movement. Uh, but I'm happy to say that we're, we're done with the radicals uh, today. We're done with Karlstadt and the German knights and the angry peasants, um, and we're turning turning to Luther. It's time finally to spring Luther from hiding uh, in the Wartburg, or at least to tell you this Sunday what he was up to for the roughly, uh, roughly a year, just less than a year uh, that he spent in, in the castle. You'll remember uh, Luther was very dramatically kidnapped at the end of the Diet of Worms in 1521. It was, of course, it, it turns out, a planned kidnapping. Um, he didn't know his ultimate location, where they would take him. Uh, he did know that he would be nabbed afterwards. But at the, at the end of Diet of Worms, very dramatically, the Spanish troops that are there um, with the emperor are calling out for him to be simply taken out and burned at the stake as a heretic. And he spends sort of the night thinking over uh, you know, the consequences of his actions. And the next morning, he's granted safe passage to leave Wittenberg and somewhere just outside of Wittenberg, uh, just outside of Worms, um, he just disappears. A band of brigands, basically, um, takes him over, thumps him on the head, stuffs him into a wagon, and off he goes. Um, we don't know how he got there, but he ended up in this castle, in, in the, uh, the Vortburg castle. And I've told you some of the details before. There's some really great pictures up, up on the internet. Uh, I pulled these all off of Google. Uh, yesterday. You can see it's high above um, the town of Eisenach, which is essentially where Luther went to high school for three or four years before going to college. He loved Eisenach, so it's up there in the hill. It's a really wonderful little castle. I was there once on a rainy day and had, a, had some potato soup and a good German pilsner. I thought, this would not be a bad place, really, <laughs> to, spend, to spend roughly a year of your life uh, hard at work. So Luther grew a beard. You've seen the picture of him um, in disguise. He let right monks have to shave their heads, the cowls. He, he grows his hair out, grows a beard, um, masks arrayed as a knight. Knight George is his alias. Uh, and he spends from March, uh, May, basically May to March, 1521 to 1522, there just less than, uh, just less than a year. Uh, so that's the, that's the castle. We know actually a lot about what he did there from day to day. Uh, mostly he wrote journals about it, um, but also he wrote uh, letters to lots of different people. All of his letter traffic had to be routed through Wittenberg. A lot of it was censored, in fact, by his, uh, his friend, the, the legal advisor to Frederick, George Spalatine. Uh, but Luther was the kind of guy who, who didn't have a thought that he didn't share, right? And so we know, we know a lot. Um, we know some serious things and some, I suppose, fairly gross things. Uh, start with the gross. Um, we know that it was in 1521 that his health really started to, de to decline. Um, he was a fairly healthy, robust figure uh, for most of his life. Um, but he always struggled with 
uh, spiritual depression and physical ailments, and then would sort of recover, live large, and be healthy again, and then and then things would spiral down, downhill. You know, people suggest that there's psychosomatic issues related to his depression and, and, and the physical manifestation of that, and that's probably true. But mostly he wrote a lot in his letters about uh, constipation, uh, stomach troubles, right? This is an age when drinking water was not that safe, uh, and, and drinking wine, it turns out, made him quite ill for a period of time. He had a bad vat of wine on hand in the castle. So he starts drinking beer uh, more and more and expanding in size. Um, you might say he becomes a sort of semi-professional beer drinker uh, at this point. And, and a after 1521, um, all the portraits of him show him gradually increasing in, in girth and the size. Um, so he writes a lot about that. I mean, love letters uh, to his wife later on are still filled with information about his, his physical troubles, um, and he's quite descriptive and, and gross. But it's almost always related to, uh, to spiritual depression. He, he had bouts of both spiritual depression um, and, and spiritual warfare uh, with the devil. There are very famous stories of him in the Vortberg hiding away, basically doing battle with the devil, yelling at the devil, uh, throwing inkwells at the walls because he's angry at the devil. Um, and this is, you know, sometimes brought up as evidence of how, what, what an unusual personality Luther must have been, strange temperament, yelling at the devil, etc. Um, but I don't think that's actually a sign of that at all. In many cases, it's just the day and age that, that uh, they lived in. The devil had a kind of active uh, agency in the world. And, and doing uh, spiritual battle was a, a realistic part of the Christian life and, and still is today. In fact, um, if you grab your Psalter hymnal here, I was just thinking about this. It ties in neatly. But the last, the last hymn we sang, 444, A Mighty Fortress, the third stanza this morning really struck me. This is the kind of thing that, that Luther is really talking about here. Um, the third stanza, it's actually on page 445, but, um, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He writes that hymn a few years later, 1529, but that, that's the sense of, of sort of the spiritual warfare in Luther's life. And so this is a, a much later 19th century portrait. It's kind of hard to make out. Um, that's an inkwell. This isn't actually what his, this is quite a, uh, a 19th century version of what the castle looked like. I'll show you his rooms in a second. But here's Luther. This is a kind of cloudy character. Doesn't look all that frightening, but that's the devil. And Luther's hurling the inkwell at him, doing, doing battle. Um, in part, it's because Luther thought that the work he was undertaking in the Vortburg uh, would have momentous um, uh, impact huge potential impact on the Reformation. And so he felt very keenly that the devil uh, was attacking him. But it's also the truth, uh, part of Luther's spiritual depression uh, stemmed from the fact that for the first time 
in his serious Christian life, he was uh, removed from the habits of monastic life. Uh, it's as if there's a kind of vacuum, spiritually speaking, in Luther's spiritual life uh, because he's, he's left the monastery. If you recall in, in you know, the past year, we've talked a little bit about Luther in, in the Augustinian monastery. And even in Wittenberg, he lived in the Augustinian house as a university professor. But everything about monastic life is highly scheduled, right? I mean, you, you set the, your clocks to the, to the monastic routine, waking at certain hours to say your prayers, waking at certain hours to sing the Psalms, waking at certain hours to uh, hear the scriptures read, working during certain hours. I mean, 15-minute increments. That's, that was Luther's life since he'd become a serious Christian uh, and joined the, joined the Augustinian order. And then from 1517 on, from the time he nails the 95 Theses on the door, he'd carried on with those monastic routines, but it also lived in the midst of absolute religious chaos um, in Europe. And he was at the center of the, of the hurricane or the tornado. And all of a sudden, he's spirited away to a castle. Basically, more alone, really, than he had been since joining the monastic order. Um, being a monk uh, didn't necessarily mean, you know, 24-hour exclusion. You live in a monastic community. Uh, and here's Luther hiding away with just a few people who are in charge of the castle. And, and he sinks into spiritual depression. Um, all of the excitement in the last few years is now just quiet. There's no one to talk to. That's probably why he wrote so many letters compulsively, just sharing news. There's nobody to talk to anymore. Um, and also, he, he had no spiritual routine uh, or set of disciplines to fall back on. And so he spirals downhill. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it's in 1521 to 1522 when Luther's in the Vorburg that he really first works out um, what a simplified Protestant or Lutheran piety will look like. Now that he's left the monastery, he has to figure it out more or less on his own. How do you maintain a healthy spirituality uh, without falling back on monastic disciplines? And it's very simplified. It looks like the word preached and the sacraments administered and a life of prayer. Not monastic prayer, sort of free uh, speaking and communing uh, with, with God. And, and Luther, uh, you know, we can think of him as a kind of superhero, really, of the Reformation. He is in many respects. But he, he deeply felt, I think, all of the, the struggles uh, and, and, and challenges that, that we all feel in the spiritual life. How do, how do you maintain focus in, in prayer? Uh, and he worked through those things. And so most of the works that he published in the early part of the Wartburg exile um, are all works of, of practical devotion, practical piety. Um, he writes a whole series of sermons uh, on the Gospels that could be used either as model sermons for, for preachers, uh, but his suggestion is to use them for basically uh, personal piety. He writes a kind of devotional manual. They're sermons that are Christ-centered, but it's a kind of devotional manual. And he writes a lot of uh, little pamphlets on prayer, how to pray, 
um, filled with all kinds of wonderful things. You know, Luther had a, had a dog, or even early on, I don't know if there's, there's no dog in this picture, but Luther had lots of dogs. He loved pets. Um, sometimes he gave them amusing names. His dog later on with his wife uh, in German, Tolpel or something, uh, basically means uh, numbskull. <laughs> he called his dog numbskull. But he liked to teach, uh, teach the dog tricks. Um, right? I mean, Luther's like a suburban man. He gets married and later on and he has kids and he's got a dog and, and he's teaching his dog tricks. Um, but everywhere he saw uh, around, everything he saw around him, he thought there's a potential sort of sermon analogy here. And when it comes to the dog, he thought his dog Numskull was really not that smart, right? Um, not that clever, very slow to learn tricks. But if you, if you put a little piece of meat out in front of the dog, just transfixed. And he's, he, he longed, he said, if, if only I could pray with a focus and concentration like, like Numskull when he's looking at that piece of meat, sort of, sort of just, right, not, not wavering in concentration. That's the kind of thing he thought about and wrote about uh, early on in the Vorpurg years, trying, to, trying to, to, to shape a Protestant piety that was focused on, on, on the word uh, and, and on prayer. I think part of his spiritual depression also stems to the fact that he wasn't, uh, in the pulpit, he wasn't he wasn't preaching, right? You can't take a preacher out of the pulpit for very long before they start to get pretty down in the dumps and sort of need to get get up there uh, and and deliver the word. That's their calling and vocation, and that certainly was Luther's. And so he was sort of depressed uh, for those reasons as well. Um, apart from those early practical works, however, Luther's main main accomplishment uh, in the in the Vorburg, the achievement for which he would later uh, be most proud, was a translation of the New Testament into German, into the German uh, vernacular. It was not uh, the first German Bible, but it was among the first uh, German translations from the, La uh, from the Greek and Hebrew original. Uh, so let me say that again. There's maybe some misunderstanding. There were Bibles in German going back to the Middle Ages. Um, vernacular translations, vernacular just technically means non-Latin. So vernacular language could be French, German, English, whatever. There were vernacular translations of the Bible in the medieval period. But they were all translations into a language from not the original Greek or Hebrew, but from the fourth century Latin Vulgate uh, translation. So Jerome, uh, a monk in the fourth century, took the best, trans uh, best manuscripts available of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament and translated the Bible into Latin in the fourth century. And this Latin is called the Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate, became the official Bible of the Western Church from the fourth century on. Uh, Latin was, the, was the, the language that everyone spoke, the lingua franca. Um, and everyone read, uh, everyone who read the Bible and studied the Bible uh, went, back to, went back to the Vulgate. So the vernacular translations in, at the time of the Renaissance and, the, and in the medieval period uh, were 
translations from the Latin Vulgate. So you can see there's a level of, of remove, right? Behind, underneath the Vulgate is the Greek and Hebrew. Um, and, then the, and then you get, if there's room up there, um, vernacular translations. So we have this intermediate text uh, in between the two. Well, Luther decided, um, as a man of his time, to translate uh, the New Testament uh, from the original Greek and, and turn it into German. So he was among the very first to do this. Not alone, not the very first, but certainly the first that became wildly popular. Um, Luther's New Testament was finally published in 1524, uh, and it was a blockbuster bestseller uh, for a couple of different reasons that I'll, that I'll try to go into. Um, here's, uh, here's Luther in disguise. Uh, there he is translating the Bible. Oh, there's his dog. Um, this isn't numbskull. This is an early dog. Um, that's pretty much what the room looks like. There's sort of green uh, stove, keeps him warm. Um, and he's, there he is, dressed as a knight, doing his work. Uh, there he is, sitting by the window again. That is certainly not what he looked like, but... Well, that's, that's a photo of what the place looks like today. You can go, you can go visit the Vortburg and, uh, and see the green stove, and that's allegedly the desk that he worked at. One, one never knows. Um... And there he is translating. He's got a pile of, of books here. Um, that may be a little misleading. There may be room here for me to talk a little bit about, about uh, the Renaissance. We have a little bit of time, and, and it might be worth just a few general remarks, especially in light of today's sermon. We can connect this to the sermon uh, if I don't lose my train of thought. So if, I, if I don't mention anything about the sermon, someone, someone hit me with a question and remind me that that's what started us down this rabbit trail. Um, it's important, though, to understand something about how, in God's providence, the time was so right for a new vernacular translation of the Bible, uh, not just from the Latin Vulgate, but from, from the original Greek and Hebrew. Um, the time was right for it because of the Renaissance recovery uh, of classical languages. Uh, maybe the best way to think about it today, uh, we, we have a, an understanding of knowledge uh, and, and it's based on the myth of, of progress. Uh, so for us, um, you know, there's the ancient world and basically knowledge accumulates as time goes on. And increases. We collect more and more knowledge. We make advancements in science. We learn how to cure various diseases, right? We have a kind of accumulative, progressive understanding of knowledge uh, in our day. In the Renaissance, it's almost quite the opposite. The understanding in the Renaissance world was that, that knowledge was something that was fullest uh, in the ancient world. The ancient times were the times when, when men like Moses and Plato 
wise philosophers, brilliant politicians and rhetoricians lived in the ancient world. And that knowledge was lost. So it's, it's not at all this sort of steady progress. It's as if everything was full and complete in the ancient world. And slowly, through the medieval period, knowledge was lost. Culture just sort of spiraled downhill. It's one of the reasons why the Renaissance uh, thinkers were like hoarders and collectors. Um, they're like antique, antique store shoppers. Um, everywhere they went, they were trying to find no lost knowledge, um, mainly through lost texts. So they're kind of like Indiana Jones, going around to find old abandoned texts uh, to recover knowledge that, that used to be known, uh, but that had since been, been lost. Well, to read old texts, uh, one must acquire skills and abilities with, um, with old languages. So I think we all probably know something about um, the Renaissance recovery of, of, of ancient classical Greek and biblical Greek. Well, that's the kind of thing that Luther drew on in translating the New Testament. But in light of today's sermon, I did remember, it's more, maybe more interesting to talk about, uh, about, about Hebrew and other languages. Um, because it's, it's the Renaissance recovery of these ancient languages and Luther's uh, you know, being caught up in the recovery of these languages that gives us the kind of preaching tradition you know, that, we, that we benefited from so, so richly today. Um, a, re a recovery of a real sensitivity, in other words, and knowledge of Old Testament history, of Hebrew customs and, and language and speech patterns. The kind of preaching, in other words, that, that connects, like, like Reverend Brown did today, Genesis 15 to 2 Samuel 3, to 2 Samuel 21 in this battle narrative. Um, why is this here? Well, it's a, a record of God preserving his people and being faithful to his promises. Well, to understand that, to see that big picture, you have to know Hebrew. You have to know something about uh, Hebrew customs, about warfare against the Philistines. Um, who are these uh, uh, giants running around? Um, and so... At the time of the Renaissance, there was a major recovery, not just of Greek and Latin, um, that all classical scholars were interested in, but also, and maybe especially, of, of the Old Testament. Now, for Luther, this was really important because his goal, not, not his goal alone, but uh, the goal of the reformers was to um, reform the church. To, to purify and, and remove the corrupt practices that had you know, encroached on and been added into uh, church piety and, and liturgy and so forth. Uh, and to really be able to accomplish that goal, you, you had to know Hebrew. Just one example that pops to mind. How do you know uh, what's appropriate when delivering the pastoral benediction? How should the pastor hold his hands? What was the custom of the day? Well, how do you distinguish what was added during Roman uh, medieval times and what was original? What did they do in the Old Testament? That was, a, that was a question. You had to know something about Hebrew and rabbinic culture to know how, um, how, how rabbinic blessings were delivered so that you would know what was authentic 
what were biblical practices and what were added corruptions. Um, and so there's a real, real recovery of, of Hebrew, not just language, but Hebrew um, customs as well, in order to better to discern what, what kind of um, bread should your communion bread be made out of. During Passover, what was unleavened bread made of? Right? All these kinds of things are running through humanists' minds and Luther's minds, too. Um, famously, when he comes to translate the Old Testament, um, he goes down to the butcher's shop and starts asking the German butchers to name the various body parts of animals because he wanted to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system and render it accurately in German from the original Hebrew. So he spends time you know, thinking about these things. Uh, and the Reformed do, do that as well. I like to say better than the Lutherans. Um, there's a, a better and more interesting uh, tradition of, of the recovery of Hebrew language in, uh, in, in the Reformed tradition. One, one of my favorite characters, this is really, really an aside, and then we'll get back to, uh, to what's actually planned. Um, there was a 16th century Reformed uh, pastor in Geneva for a while who became a, uh, a scholar named Isaac Casabon. And he wrote, after years of studying Hebrew, a Hebrew grammar that was used to train Reformed pastors. Well, it was used for 15, 20 years, and then a new one came along and replaced it, and, and slowly Casabon's uh, uh, grammar wasn't used. And they found it again uh, in the mid-19th century in a library, and no one knew who Isaac Casabon was. But his grammar was, was so accurate and careful as, a, as an instructional text that they figured, this is in the Bodleian Library in, in Oxford, the, catalog, the, the librarians of the Bodleian Catalog figured he must have been a rabbi. So they actually classified the text under Rabbi Itzhak Kasabin, thinking he must have been uh, you know, a real Jewish scholar. That's the kind of tradition that, uh, that Luther is a part of uh, that was inspired by, by the Renaissance, a real, a real recovery of, uh, of ancient, ancient texts. Um, well, how does this all connect with Luther? Luther had already learned some Hebrew in, as a boy in school. Uh, that's the cover page of, the, of his New Testament. Sorry, it's a little blurry there, isn't it? Um, it connects to Luther because of this gentleman here. We've talked about him a few times, Philip, Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was, was the linguist of the Reformation. He's the man who taught uh, Luther Hebrew. Um, at least gave, uh, maybe he'd, Luther maybe learned a little bit of Hebrew before, but um, he really became proficient uh, when he was inspired by, by Melanchthon. Um, Melanchthon was kind of like the, uh, what would you call him? The Secretary of Education. Uh, for, for Germany. He became known as Germany's teacher because he revised curriculum, uh, taught languages, etc. Um, he's a, br a brilliant scholar and he's the one who inspired Luther to, uh, to learn um, uh, Hebrew. Not just Luther. Uh, one more aside here. You know who spent seven years living with Philip Melanchthon in Wittenberg? Learning Greek and Hebrew? Zacharias Ursinus. Ursinus spent seven years living in Melanchthon's house, learning Greek and Hebrew, uh, and then went on to be probably the chief writer of, uh, uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism. There are a few others. 
uh, the other uh, forgotten name is uh, Emmanuel Tremelius. So who, are the, who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism? Ursinus is one. I've just given you the, the uh, forgotten name. Emmanuel Tremelius, Casper uh, Livian, Zacharias Ursinus, and then this forgotten man, uh, Emmanuel Tremelius. Emmanuel Tremelius was a converted Jew who was won over to the Reformation, became a Christian, um, in part because people, uh, Renaissance scholars, started pestering him about Hebrew and rabbinic cultures. And they were basically dialoguing, help us understand uh, uh, you know, patterns of worship in rabbinic culture. And slowly he was won over and, and converted. So anyways, Melanchthon uh, has a huge impact on Luther and, and the Reformed as well. And Luther carries on with his translations. Um, it's important to remember, above all things, Luther was a professor of, of, of Old and New Testament. He was a Bible professor. Uh, and so he lectured through, throughout the Bible and, and translated uh, things as well. Okay, why was, the, why was the New Testament such a, um, such a popular smash success? Um, the important answer is, of course, uh, because of the preaching of the word that went along with Bible reading. So when the German New Testament was, was introduced in this kind of new, fresh, lively translation um, with Luther's, you know, having spent time with the German butchers, it connected with people, uh, and it became, more importantly, a preacher's Bible. So the beginning of the Protestant tradition of the pastor going into their study to study uh, the Bible in Hebrew and in Greek, and then to prepare the sermon from those ancient texts, but then referring constantly, uh, actually in the sermon, to the German text began in 1524. Um, So that the people were never left in the dark about the scholarship that was in the pastor's study, studying the Greek and Hebrew languages. I feel like I'm obscuring this point. Um, From 1524, pastors began the practice of themselves studying the original languages in their study, preparing their sermons from the original languages. But then in the revision process, before delivering the sermon, they would check all of the scripture references uh, and cite them, quote them in the sermon from from the new modern German translation, not from the original Hebrew. The point was to not let the people be in the dark about an obscure Hebrew or Greek text that they didn't understand and didn't have access to. So it rests on scholarship, but it's preached in a popular and lively manner. Um, that's the chief reason for the success of, of Luther's, Luther's New Testament. Um, it connected with the people, and it was used uh, for preaching. Okay, what did... Um, Luther find in the Bible and what comes out so clearly in the illustrations that are inserted into uh, Luther's German New Testament. It turns out uh, Lucas Cranach, our friend who's been painting these pictures all along, uh, inserted 21 illustrations into Luther's German Bible. One of the more famous ones is this image. According to Luther, this is what the Bible's about. And according to Cranach's illustration, well, what, what is this illustration all about? 
Any wild guesses? What was that? Genesis, yeah, there's Adam and Eve. A little louder. I didn't quite hear it. About Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. Um, you're, you're all heading down the right path. It's about two things, first of all. There's a big tree right down the middle. So it's about two things. And you might stop and think, well, is it about Old Testament, New Testament? No. This side of the tree is green, has leaves. This side of the tree is withered. There's, there's no life on this side, but there is on this side. And it cuts the scene right down the middle. Long gospel. That's what the Bible's about. The Bible is about distinguishing between law and gospel. Over on the law side, Right, we have Moses and the Ten Commandments. Moses looks an awful lot like a Protestant preacher there, but never mind that. <laughs> um, that's that's where you have uh, the law over there, and you have um, death, the skeleton, and the devil hounding this poor man into the flames of hell. Over on the law side, you have Adam and Eve. This, by the way. Um, Cranach takes this basic image here of Adam and Eve and the apple and, and reduplicates that all over the place. Um, it's almost ubiquitous in Cranach paintings, this very famous image of Adam and Eve, and they're almost always in the same uh, portion. This is really getting us aside, but if you've ever seen, probably you haven't, uh, but maybe some of you don't admit it, have seen Desperate Housewives. Well, in the, like, in the, in the, prologue show leading up to Desperate Housewives. There's a picture of Adam and Eve, and it's Lucas Cranach's uh, right there. It's that part of the, that part of the painting um, in Desperate Housewives. Who knew uh, that the writers loved high Renaissance art uh, from Germany? In any case, um, Christ is coming in judgment. That's a sword right there. The law trying to live life according to the law, trying to make yourself right with God and earn God's favor based on the law leads only to death, being hounded into the pit of hell and, and Christ coming as judge. Whereas the gospel is about the prominence of the empty tomb, Luther's theology of the cross that Dr. Clark talked about last week, the crucified Christ is, is central John the Baptist, here, here's our, this is the same guy. He's being pointed by John the Baptist to Christ. Um, Christ is offering a blessing of peace when he comes in glory to gather uh, his elect. The triumphant lamb conquering uh, death and the devil down here. The lamb standing triumphant upon death and the devil. Law and gospel. That's what the Bible's about. Two words. Not Old Testament, New Testament, but the law simply, uh, Christ's command, the gospel, uh, sorry, the, the, the Bible's commands, do this and live, wherever that should be found, wherever commandments should be found, Old Testament or New Testament, is the law. 
and the gospel announcing uh, what Christ has done for us. Luther said, this is it. That's what the Bible's about, distinguishing between law and gospel. Uh, since we were mentioning Philip Melanchthon uh, and, and Zacharias or Sinus, this is the same thing that's in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What's the whole Bible about? What's the whole thing about in question two of the Heidelberg Catechism? Guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? Well, guilt, how do we know our guilt? How do we know our sin and misery in question three? The law. Um, where does the gospel come in? Question 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How do we know about the mediator um, who's, who's taken our place, who's given us a righteousness? Question 19 asks, how do we know these things about Christ the mediator? The gospel. Guilt, grace, uh, is law and gospel. That's what, that's what uh, Ursinus learned uh, uh, spending time in, in Wittenberg. Uh, that's what all the reformers knew. In fact, if you look at the very beginning of Ursinus's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first sentence of the commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism says, the whole doctrine of the church, the complete and entire doctrine on which the church depends is summed up in the distinguishing between law and gospel. That's it. That's what it's all about. The law drives us to Christ, and the gospel reveals uh, that salvation is possible in Christ and is given to us freely as a gift. Uh, that's what it's all about. And that's, these kinds of little illustrations um, helped readers understand the Bible when it was first being reintroduced into, into popular piety. So that's Cranach. I'm determined to stop uh, with enough time for, for questions or, or, or comments. Um, we'll go on uh, next week. We have two Sunday schools left. We'll go on next week um, to talk about what happens when Luther is out of the Vortburg. Uh, and, and we'll try to move actually fairly quickly to get into the 1530s to have some sense of what happens uh, in the aftermath uh, of Luther's Vortburg years. But are there any questions or thoughts? Um, it was kind of haphazard today, but that's what Luther was doing. He was translating the Bible and working with Cranach uh, to help illustrate uh, the Bible. Yeah, Um, well, that's a tough one. Um, can I say both and? I mean, it is true that in the 16th century, there was maybe a, a kind of hyper-spiritual sensitivity. Um, people saw the devil's agency and, and angel's agency in lots of different things. Um, the sun, the moon, horoscopes, Melanchthon thought basically you could um, chart your life by looking at horoscopes, which is a kind of odd, unusual thing. But he thought if ever there was a symbol of God's providence, it was in the stars and the movement. The, and so we can, we can learn things from this. 
Um, now, that is the way they thought, in other words. Um, and, you know, knowing that that's the way uh, some of the reformers thought can help us put their context or put, put, put context to their statements. Um, but we don't, don't simply want to just do away with spiritual warfare and say, well, that's what they thought then, right? Um, they thought the devil was, you know, in the walls, etc. Um, that's that's crazy today. Um, we have to have a healthy sense of uh, of the Bible's teaching that we continue to do battle with the three great enemies: the world, uh, the flesh, and the devil. And we still sing the third verse of a mighty fortress uh, and mean it. Um, I think we have maybe a different understanding of how the devil works in the world uh, than than Luther might have. And, and so some of his statements have to be, you know, interpreted in that light. Does that help? No. <laughs> um, it's up to you, I suppose, really. Uh, no, that's a tough question. I, um, I think there's probably a range of, of Christian opinions on spiritual warfare. Um, it's a good question and an important one. We have to understand the context in which people lived in the 16th century to um, have kind of charitable interpretations of what they were having, uh, of, of what they were saying, and what they meant, and what they thought about the world. Um, but I, I also want to avoid um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, "Well, we know better now, um, right?" Because we uh, we still believe in spiritual warfare. And, and Ephesians 6 and other places um, teach true things about the world that we live in today that are important. Um, to say more than that, we'll have to drag Pastor Brown in here. <laughs> um, because there are a range of different opinions. I, I'd be curious to hear what he'd have to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, I wish we had another two or three minutes to talk about it. Let me take a stab at it quickly. Um, everyone's collecting original, original manuscripts. So, um, right, Luther is kidnapped, uh, but he knew, you know, something was up, and he, and he probably would be kidnapped after Worms. The few possessions that he brought with him were um, a couple of Greek manuscripts. That's why it's... There was one picture where he had a bunch of books sitting at his feet. They probably wouldn't have been books. They would have been scrolls and manuscripts. But he also brought with them Erasmus's New Testament, Greek New Testament. So Erasmus also had done some of this work, tried to find all of the Greek manuscripts that he could, piece them together to try to establish the Greek New Testament that then later scholars could use. So Luther actually relied on, on Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Um, and it was a great... Uh, detective effort to piece together, based on existing manuscripts, the best, most reliable, accurate version of the Greek New Testament to then work off of. Um, and they corrected all kinds of mistakes from the Latin Vulgate. 
Uh, one of the most famous ones is um, the Greek word metanoia is rendered in Latin um, penitentia. So behind this is a, is a discussion about um, how are we saved? Is it repent and believe or do penance and believe? Well, the Latin Vulgate would lead you to believe it's do penance and believe, penitentia. But the Latin uh, word penitentia isn't the most faithful uh, translation from the Greek original. The Greek word is metanoia, which has a range of meanings, but most scholars agree that the best translation of it is repent, which is quite different than do penance. So that would be a, a way in which the Greek um, uh, texts at the time sort of fix problems in the Latin Vulgate. Um, but even in the establishing of the Greek text, they didn't do this perfectly, right? There are still issues. Erasmus is really kind of notorious, infamous, infamous for having made some mistakes uh, in, in this regard. Um, the Textus Receptus, um, the received text that lies behind the King James Version. Uh, this is really quickly. Um, this is, I think, maybe something that, that, that Christians should know when you think about the King James Bible. Um, the King James Bible is, is great. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. But there are some problems in the book of Revelation, the very end of it, because Erasmus got lazy and he kind of cheated. Uh, Erasmus had manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, for the entire New Testament, except the last 20 or so verses of the book of Revelation. He had no Greek manuscripts for that. It doesn't mean they didn't exist. He just didn't have them in his little office in Basel where he was working. Well, how do you, if you're trying to put together a Greek New Testament and you don't have Greek manuscripts for the end of the book of Revelation, what do you do? Well, he basically cheated. He took the Latin Vulgate that had been around since the 4th century and back-translated it. He, he invented his own Greek from the Latin. So Erasmus' uh, Greek New Testament has the last 20 or so verses of the book of Revelation entirely made up by, by Erasmus. Right? Well, in just those 20 verses, uh, verses, he introduced something like 17 textual errors in, in, into the New Testament. Well, that's the Greek uh, that, that lies behind the book, uh, that lies behind the King James Version of the Bible. So the King James Bible translates into English from Erasmus' New Testament and includes a lot of those textual errors. Um, it's one of the reasons why the Reformed wanted to sort of establish you know, their own New Testament and, and do things. The whole science of translation, in other words, is very, very interesting. Tom and back, yeah? Is the New King James correct for the last verses? I think so, yeah, yeah. And there are other problems with, with Erasmus as well, um, things that people continue to debate. The Trinitarian formula in 1 John, these three things testify... Um, what is it in, in 1 John 3, is, is probably inserted by Erasmus into the text uh, under pressure from Rome. That's, that's debated. The New King James does, does, does fix a lot of those things, is my understanding. But it probably fixes them in the, in the footnotes, would be my guess. But I think we're over time. Um, 
We didn't even get to talk about uh, about Arabic today, but we'll, we'll say that for another time. Um, the reformers were also pioneers and uh, in, in, in Arabic studies, uh, and and actually re- the reformed produced the very first um, Latin uh, translation of the entire Quran in the middle of the 16th century, the 1540s. A reformed pastor and scholar from Zurich translated the Quran into Latin to study it to try to better understand this threat from the East and to understand how to do missions and evangelism and things. So uh, there's a, a long, noble history of pastors um, going to the study and, and, and working on Greek and Hebrew for their sermon preparation. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> uh, gracious Father, we, uh, we've heard your word this morning, um, even your law, and we delight in your law because we have been uh, renewed according to our inward man by the by the work of your spirit, Father, who uh, applies the redemption accomplished for us by, by Christ our Lord, our, our great high priest, uh, our mediator, the one who, who took our place to fulfill the law's demands. And we thank you for the complete uh, and entire and perfect salvation that we have in him, uh, a righteousness freely, freely given. Continue to renew us, we pray, uh, day by day by your word and spirit. Strengthen our faith in Christ. Uh, by means of your word preached uh, and at and at your table, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen.